You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. You'd open your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. It'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through 9. <clears throat> Go there with me. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And this is the word of the Lord, amen? Pray a blessing. Father, Father, this is your word. And we need your word. And we need you to come and speak to us. Where man cannot live by mere physical bread alone, but can only live upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Father, we ask that you would come and speak through your word by the power of your spirit to us. We trust and believe and know that your word is powerful. It is living, it is active. And your word comes as a mirror so that us, men and women, can stand in front of that mirror and simultaneously see our imperfections and your perfection. God, we ask that you would come and that you would do just that this morning. We beg you, God, to come and give us your spirit, that you would illuminate your word, that you would shine light on, in, and through your word into our hearts, that you would transform our minds. We pray that you would protect our time together, that you would remove boundaries and hindrances that would stop us from hearing your word. We pray most of all that you would unleash the fury of the love of your son, Jesus, through the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Theme of this uh, section of text is slaves and masters. How about that for a touchy topic in this day and age? The reality is it's a touchy topic in any day and age. And I admit that this passage, you need to know, this passage has given me fits for the last two weeks as we've, we've inched our way closer and closer to it. My, my, my first issue, got a number of issues. My first issue is that the biblical theme of slavery is an absolute beast, okay? It's an absolute beast of a, of a theme throughout the scriptures. And my second issue is that the theme of slaves and masters, it's not a simple one, it's super complex. I mean, it's a theme that has what appears to be a million different nuances. 
million different bunny trails would be another way of saying that. So you guys know me, love bunny trails. Um, my third issue is that I really want to be sensitive to the powder keg that this topic can be for us while still being faithful to what God's word actually says. Um, so, so the weight of this passage, the impossibility of what we need to do here and what I need to do here weighs on me. Um, it's not about me. But nevertheless, I want you to know uh, the difficulty of coming to this passage this morning. So before we dive into uh, like the meaning and the application of this passage, I think it's really vital that we set some context and get a framework um, for hearing this word. Uh, I don't want to be cavalier and I don't want to be irresponsible uh, or, or even naive about how touchy this topic is. And I also uh, want to be sensitive uh, to, 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 to the nature of this passage, right? I don't want our hearts to just shut down immediately because we're sensitive, and, and we should be. Let me just say that. I want, to, I want to call it out. Like We should be sensitive to what this passage says, and we should be sensitive to all of the issues culturally that we bring to a passage like this. We should be. Um, uh, the topic of slavery for me uh, in my limited understanding, I mean, look at me. I'm a white guy. Okay? I don't, I won't even try to say that I have a real deep understanding of all the implications of the topic of slavery. I can't. I don't, I didn't, I don't, I don't, I don't experience things the same way. Um, but I will say that this topic, this thing, man, it brings about a sense of fury and frustration uh, and disgustedness for me as I, as I look at this theme. I feel, I feel like a deep, very real, uh, very experiential sense of rage when it comes to this topic. When I, when I think about how in the world any human being could ever want to turn any other human being into a mere piece of property, or, or, or worse, turn another human being into a blunt instrument to further their agenda, I feel rage. I don't just feel anger, I feel rage. But the dehumanization within slavery goes against the very heart of the gospel, which, which teaches us that every person, regardless of skin color, and regardless of social economic background, regardless of religious belief or experience, those people, every person was created in the image of God. And then sin came and infected that image within us, left us broken and shattered. Then our Savior came and He died on a cross and He rose again on the third day so that His image bearers could be restored. Slavery, bottom line, is antithetical to the gospel. Right? Furthermore, uh, we live in a country uh, that has in its history quote, unquote, heroes that actually went to war to preserve their so-called right to make another image bearer their property. Right? We celebrate these men like heroes. 
you dress it up in whatever economic or political garbage you want to dress that topic up in. At the end of the day, we fought a war over whether or not a man could own another man. We celebrate these men in our history records. We build monuments to honor them. We literally honor what is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ instead of mourning the horror of our history together. So you tell, there's some passion, there's some anger in me over this topic. Um, There's a problem in all this too. (coughs) This passage This passage wasn't written to slaves and masters in America in the 1800s. It just wasn't. So, like, if you're here and you're, here's what I know. I know there are two different groups of people in our presence today. So, my aim is not to prop up one side or the other. My aim is to do what I think the gospel does, and it is to lay waste to all of it and then turn our attention to Jesus at the cross because that's most important. So only the Spirit of God can do that. This passage wasn't written to slaves and masters in America in the 1800s. So, so if you're getting all excited right now, right, because you're on one side of, of the fence, you think you're going to hear a sermon on the evils of slavery, you're wrong. It's not what you're going to hear. If you're already tuned out, because I just smashed your hero statue all over the floor, with the message of the gospel, you're wrong too. Okay? This passage wasn't written to slaves and masters in the 1800s, and it wasn't written to speak out against the powder keg of ethnic upheaval that we're facing in 2018. But, but it is applicable. Now, there is a difference. There's a difference between meaning and application. The meaning of this passage was not written to us, but you could say it's written for us. So there is application that we can make. This is where we need a biblical framework for what we're about to study. So while the horrific history of slavery in America is, let me say again, grotesque, infuriating, depressing, the culture of the Ephesian church, this is what we need to hear, the culture of the Ephesian church was radically different in many ways on the one hand, and it was radically similar to what we've experienced on the other hand. And the work for us is to ensure that we understand those differences and then apply this passage appropriately. not forget that Paul is writing to Christians in the Ephesian church, okay? He's writing to us, so just think of yourselves as the Ephesian church. Put yourself in the room as you receive this letter from the apostle Paul. He's written this to you specifically and personally, and he's writing to you about the relationship between masters and their slaves. There's absolutely no getting around that, He's not addressing the unbelieving culture outside the church family. That's not who he's writing this letter to. Now, the culture outside the Ephesian church, that that culture did have similarities to our culture of slavery in the old 1800s. Many would say that where we got our system of oppressive slavery here in America came right out of the Roman Empire, which was 
the highest and I think largest cultural shaper in the day and age when the Ephesian church was being planted. But all that to be said, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, not to the culture outside the church. But he is actually addressing slaves and masters who are sitting in the same seats together, in the same church gathering together. So the picture, the picture here for us, radically different from our frame of reference here in America, if you think about it, because in our frame of reference, there was a time where black folks, specifically, were prohibited from drinking out of the same water fountains as white people, uh, not including, couldn't sit in the same room, right, in a church gathering. You got the back row. You were a person of color. That's our history. Uh, this is, is a bit different in that regard in that you would have masters and slaves sitting in the same room. And in some regards, you would have slaves who had the gift of teaching who would get up and teach with authority over their master. This is just, you, you've got to do lots of history study to find this. So I say there's, there's nuance certain cultural framework there different than ours. So we, we have to be uber careful not to transport our American experience into the Ephesian church, but that does not alleviate the fear or the uneasiness that I think I feel and we all have to feel in these moments as we look at this text. Like, here's some questions, and I th- we have to ask this question, like, how in the heck could there be slaves with masters in the Ephesian church? How? Uh, weren't these people Christians? Right? Weren't they Christians? Hadn't they heard the gospel message? Didn't they know? Didn't, didn't they understand that they are equally created in the image of God? Why didn't these slave masters in the Ephesian church turn their slaves loose once they began to follow Jesus? Why didn't they take up arms and fight to abolish slavery in Ephesus? Why is that not the narrative that we have? Why didn't the bylaws of the Ephesian church or the, or the membership covenant of the Ephesian church prohibit slavery? Why is there no record of that? If these people were actually Christians, right? <coughs> that's, that's not all. You want, you want to hear another beef? I'll give you a beef that will probably knock your socks off. Um, if you spread the context out and you go outside the book of Ephesians, I'll just tell you, if you look all the way back into the Old Testament law, and you look into other books of the Bible written, um, you're going to find some things said about slavery that are awful hard to interpret. Um, look at the book of Philemon sometime. It's a book of Philemon. This is also written by the Apostle Paul, and what you find in the book of Philemon is that he's writing to a slave owner on behalf of a runaway slave whom Paul is sending back to the slave owner and he's pleading with his slave owner to receive the runaway slave as a brother and a friend instead of a convicted felon. That's the book of Philemon. What the heck is up with that? Right? The Apostle Paul is sending this man back to his owner why, why didn't Paul write a hate letter instead to this guy? Why didn't he write a hate letter to this quote-unquote Christian slave owner and tell him that he was a, if he was a real Christian that he wouldn't own a slave? Why didn't, why didn't he do that? 
I don't understand. Why did the Apostle Paul jump on Facebook, blast this dude with all sorts of articles written by the latest and greatest theologians who, who like supported his case to abolish slavery? Why, why didn't Paul do that? This twists my mind. And, and I'll be honest with you, like, as I'm asking these questions, maybe you've never asked these questions, but I can tell you there's an entire culture outside this church that is asking these questions, and these are barriers for people coming and joining our church family, number one, and really primarily, number one, actually, that's number two, number one, primarily, just even giving Jesus a chance. Because these questions have not been answered well in the Christian church. They've been glossed over, they've been turned around, and they've been, they've been jacked with. Um, and I, and I, I, can't even, I can't even purport to think that I'm going to do that great of a job with it today, although I'm going to do the best that I can. I think we could probably spend a long time here, and we probably should. question. Like, did the Apostle Paul even want to abolish slavery? Just given what he's written on the topic? Was slavery in the Ephesian church, was it the same as what we've experienced here in America? Now, the simple answer uh, to those questions is yes and no. How about that for a non-decisive answer? The answer really is yes and no. I don't believe, as I understand and study I don't believe that Paul supported systemic slavery, um, and I also don't believe that slavery was necessarily the same in the Ephesian church, in the culture, yes, but not necessarily in the church. Um, I think that a more nuanced answer is this. I think, that, I think that Ephesian Christians, the Ephesian Christians are being saved out of a Roman culture that had adopted a system of slavery that was very similar to our American experience of slavery in the 1800s. Okay, I do believe that. I, I do see that some scholars, a lot of scholars, I think the heavy weight of scholars, say that, that nearly a third of the Ephesian culture were living in slavery. So just think about the cultural ramifications and effects of that. It'd be like saying, I mean, I, the illustration probably doesn't hold up, it's fine, shoot me if you want to, but at the end of the day, it's kind of like saying, hey, a third of our culture owns TVs, and all they ever do is watch them. Get it? I hope. But, that's a big but in my understanding. While there were for sure some similarities between uh, the Roman practice of slavery and, and the American practice of slavery, um, at the time of the writing of the book of Ephesians that we're studying, I, there, there was, my understanding is there was a massive cultural reform uh, actually taking place in Ephesus and throughout the Roman Empire. And according to my sources, and I'll tell you, here's my sources. I have a number of commentaries. You walk into my office, you see them. You all make jokes about them because I love reading my commentaries, right? So I have a number of commentaries. I have, I have some great Bible software on my phone that we paid lots of money to get, sure. Um, so I've got a lot of things at my fingertips there. Um, but I will be honest with you. At some point, I got really desperate. I have a really good friend of mine who is, A, number one, a black guy. Uh, number two, he's a solid Christian. Number three, he's reformed in his theology. And number four, uh, he's a pastor. Number five, he's a church planter. You put all those pieces together, he and I, we've become good friends over the years. And I haven't talked to him in a while, so I called him. I was like, bro, I'm, I'm going to say I'm sorry, first of all. Um, but I'm calling you because I don't understand. And, I, and some of what I'm reading doesn't set right. I need, to, I need you to explain some things to me. To be honest with you, in about 20 minutes, he, he uh, laid waste to some things. Um, was very helpful, um, really gave me um, some, some, some great direction. 
uh, according to he, though, and, and the commentaries that I um, dug into, uh, slavery uh, in, in, in the day of the Ephesian church ranged from everything as horrific as we could possibly imagine, all the way up to something as harmless as being an employee who lived in the home of their employer. And so that's why I say, like, this is it's a pretty nuanced topic when you're looking at just this passage. The date that it was written, the author, the people it was written to, and all those things. Uh, with all that information, with the clearest counsel that I received from my friend Dan in Lincoln, um, and from the commentaries, is, is this. I hope that we can hold on to this too. We must not let the language of this passage offend us. We, but at the same, we also need to see that the Apostle Paul in this passage, he actually does take a shot across the bow at systemic slavery. He does. Um, you'll have to hang with me. You'll have to hang with the text until we get there. It's important for us to take it in order the way that Paul wrote it. I think that he, uh, led by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, came at this issue uh, in, in a way that really would um, abolish slavery as we know it. Okay. Lastly, I think, there are like two more paragraphs here. Before going to the text, it's also important for us to understand that the vast biblical topic of slavery, it applies to every one of us more than we know. Hence, the illustration of the TV a little bit ago. Okay. It's one small way that we become enslaved to a master that treats us really poorly. Now, my friend in Lincoln, he quickly reminded me that every one of us, right, uh, is a slave to someone or something. Borrowers are slaves to lenders. You cannot be enslaved to money and God both, but instead you can only be enslaved to one master, you're either a slave to your sin to do what your sin demands that you do, or you're enslaved to Christ who sets you free from the slave over, over, of your sin so that you can freely live in obedient freedom, right? So, so the language of the scriptures all the way through, this is, this is crazy, the language of the scriptures is actually so steeped in slavery, it's not even funny. But what I think the Holy Spirit did and does in his unique way um, is he rebuilds our framework and our category of how we talk about and how we live out and how we interact with this topic, okay? Um, seriously, lastly, before we jump back into the text, um, we do have our own immediate context to apply this passage to. So think about this. Credit card debt, it's a cruel master, right? Many of us here are enslaved to credit card debt. Uh, our vocations and our employers can be cruel masters. Many of us here are enslaved to cruel masters. Our political system, our social system, our judicial system, our educational system, all of those systems can be cruel masters that we become enslaved to. So don't translate our system into the Ephesian system, but instead seek to understand what God is speaking to the Ephesians and seek how that can be redemptive for us. So, then what's, what does Paul say? What does he say about slaves and masters? With all that introductory work done. Number one, Paul gives instructions to slaves, right? Verses 5 through 8. Paul says, bond servants, 
Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Paul's instruction to slaves is fairly straightforward and simple. He doesn't, doesn't, doesn't leave much to the imagination. His, his simple call to us is one of what? Obedience. Obedience within a structure of authority. We're called to obey our earthly bosses. Not with a cowering kind of a fear, but, but with a holy and sincere reverence just as we are called to obey Christ with a holy and sincere reverence. I revere you, right? Why would we revere Christ? Not because we're afraid of him necessarily, though we could nuance out a whole bunch of topics on the holy fear of God, which is then interpreted out into reverence. Not as a cowering type of fear in the corner, but more of a reverence for Christ because we see what Christ did for us at the cross. He's not a cruel master. He's a loving, sacrificial king. See the difference? We're not called to obey Jesus out of an unhealthy fear of what he will do to us if we are disobedient. But instead, we're called to obey out of an authentic reverence for Christ's loving care of us. Our obedience is not to be merely outward physical performance to impress people around us. Ever get caught in that? Man, I just wonder what they're going to think about me if I do X, Y, Z. Like every one of us in this room asks that question and sometimes lives enslaved to that question. Anybody want to admit to living enslaved to that question? Like that's my master sometimes, right? I'm so worried about what you might think about me that I then try to live this way, right? Then I have this kind of dualism in my life where my life lacks integrity. I do things behind closed doors that I would never do in front of anybody else, right? That's called slavery. Enslaved to a cruel master at that point. Our obedience to be motivated by a right understanding that if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, then what? What happens if we trust in Christ as our Savior? We belong to Him. Ownership. See this? We belong to Him. Again, seeking to redeem the biblical language of slavery and masters. We belong to Christ. We are His possession, aren't we? Why are we his possession? We are his possession so that he can lavish his love upon us instead of using us to further his selfish agenda. You see the contrast between how this went wrong? This is what it means to do the will of God from the heart. Because the question that we are not called to ask is, what will they think about me? It's not the question we're called to ask. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that question. What will they think about me? Instead, the question we're called to ask is this. What does God require of me? What does God require of me based upon what He has done and is doing for me? Let me, let me say that again. The question we're called to ask is, what does God require of me based upon what He has done and, and, and continues to do for me. You see, every act of service, every work that we perform for anyone here on earth, it must be driven by the knowledge and the understanding that we are serving God. 
We're serving a God who has served us so well in the cross of Christ. Lastly, our service here on earth to our earthly masters, uh, whether they be debt collectors uh, or employers or governmental authorities, doesn't matter. Whoever, whoever it is that's in mastery over us and authority over us, our service to those masters and more, it's got to be rooted in the truth that there are rewards awaiting us in heaven. We have received more than we can ever comprehend in the cross of Christ. We've received more than we can ever comprehend in the cross of Christ. And we will receive more than we can ever comprehend from our obedience to Christ when we run out of our graves and into heaven. Agreed? There's rewards awaiting for us. Number two, Paul gives instructions to masters in verse 9. You might look at it with me. Verse 9, Paul says, Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. Circle that. Do the same to them. Catching it? Do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that He who is both their Master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with Him. First thing Paul says to masters is do the same to them. What is the same? What is the same that Paul calls masters to here? I think the same that Paul is referring to here is the same kind of God-honoring relational interaction. Calls masters and slaves to the same kind of God-honoring interaction relationally. Calls slaves to a Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting, Christ-serving obedience to their masters, right? This is the kind of obedience that acts one way when the boss man is around. And then acts another way when he's not around. isn't the kind of obedience that acts one way when your parents are around, the other way when your parents are gone. This isn't the kind of obedience where you act one way when your spiritual mentor is around and when your spiritual mentor is gone, you act differently. It's not that kind of eye service, lip service kind of service, right? It's the kind of obedience Paul calls slaves to that exalts Christ as a servant of Christ with integrity of heart at all times. It's getting down to the basis of integrity. This is the same kind of obedient, from the heart, kind of performance that Paul calls masters to. This, I don't know if you can catch the way of this, this would have been absolutely revolutionary for the Ephesians. It would have been absolutely revolutionary, especially to the culture outside the Ephesian church. So if the church is meant to be the visible representation of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, in a perverse and dark culture... If the Ephesian church would grab a hold of what Paul is saying here, it would have been an absolutely revolutionary example of God's heart for people. Why? You might say, why? Well, there was definitely reform taking place in the Ephesian culture outside the church in regards to slavery. Okay? Let me tell you about that reform. The kind of reform that was taking place in that culture was that they were beginning to understand that taking care of those who worked for you should be a value. You should take care of those who work for you, right? Um, it makes sense. 
Um, here's the thing, though. That value of taking care of those who work for you wasn't being valued because people are valuable. That wasn't the motivating factor in the culture outside the church. It wasn't like, man, these people are so valuable. I need to value them and take care of them and treat them right. That wasn't the way it was getting spun together. And the Ephesian church faced the difficulty of being motivated the same way that the culture around them was motivated, kind of like romantic relationships. Okay? Outside the church, we're motivated to be in a romantic relationship because it makes us feel good. That's not primarily the motivator inside the church. The primary motivator inside the church is so that we can serve Christ and serve one another who is the image of Christ so that we might set a better example and a saving example for the culture outside, right? Do you see how easily? Because we still are ruled by our emotions, aren't we, and our feelings. Wow. I like her. She's hot. She makes me feel good. Whatever. Got me? Same thing was happening in this topic of slavery. They were motivated not because these people were valuable. They were motivated by this, this truth and this understanding that if they treated their workers well, they got more work out of them. Understand? If you treat your workers well, you get more work out of them, and that's true. But that's a value that's based on usury rather than service. Got it? So this is what was so radical about what the Apostle Paul is saying. This is how he drops a bomb that ultimately abolishes slavery, as we know it, as we understand it, and as they were experiencing it. He gives his instruction within the context of the structure of authority that he has in front of them without actually attacking the structure. It's really actually very uh, unique. Um, he doesn't actually attack the structure. He's not on Facebook just blasting this thing, right? Instead, he comes in really subversively, gets beneath the structure, which is actually where the heart of the issue is, isn't it? Gets underneath the structure, attacks that. And that eventually causes that structure to crumble. Every one of us, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of our experiences, regardless of our political alignment, regardless of our economic welfare, and every one of us will answer to the same God who is master of all creation. Every one of us. Okay? Yeah. God is no more partial to the person who has been oppressed because of their skin color than he is partial to the person who has been oppressed because of their economic status or religious experience. God hates all oppression, period. I know what oppression feels like. I know what it's like to grow up in the welfare system and have duct tape on my shoes. I don't know what it was like to be black, but I know what it's like to be oppressed by a system that was never meant for the good of its people. It was meant to just actually put a Band-Aid on top and push people to the corner and pretend like you don't exist. So I get that. And that's, that's more important than skin color, isn't it? But see how we miss it so often? Paul's instruction to masters is to do the same to those who work for you, not because doing this will advance your little earthly kingdom, but instead because doing this is right. Why? Because all of us are under the sovereign rule and the sovereign care of a sacrificial and loving king. It's the picture Paul gives us. Therefore, treat your workers right. Treat them as though they are equal to you because they are equal to you. It's Paul's argument. Don't threaten them, but instead seek 
to serve their every need and see to it that they are enabled to grow under your care of them. So question, what's the application of this passage for us? Uh, We know that. We've got some context. I feel like we could spend weeks and weeks on this. What do we need to believe? What do we need to obey? What's the one thing we need to put into action from this sermon? Because here's the one thing I don't want. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear that a bunch of us just went out to lunch and just had a great big fat argument over this and hurt each other's feelings. Because I've heard that already a number of times about our church, and I'm tired of hearing that. It's not godly. And it makes the gospel secondary. So please, please, be careful with one another on this. Uh, That's not the appropriate result or response from this passage. I think think I would take a stab at it this way. Every one of us is simultaneously a slave and a master. If you walk out of here with one thought, I hope that I've abolished both sides of a possible fence here. I hope that I've laid waste to us enough to then hopefully turn our attention to the cross of Christ, which is the primary, central, most important topic that we could be on. And the way that I think builds the bridge to that is this simple truth. Every one of us is simultaneously a slave and a master. We are enslaved to some things, and we are masters over other things. We are enslaved to debtors, bosses, political systems, friends' expectations, etc. This is what my friend Dan in Lincoln so clearly pointed out to me. It's like, bro, I'm a black dude, I get it. But let's not forget what's most important here. Because every one of us falls into systemic slavery in many ways or another. And every one of us has the opportunity to be a master. And the question is, are you being faithful in your areas of authority as a master? And are you being faithful in your area as a slave to some things? We are masters over people who serve us, people who work under us, children we take care of, people who owe us money, the waiter at the restaurant. You know, the idea of, uh, let's pick on a bone for a second here when it comes to waiters at restaurants. Yeah, just a pet peeve. Um, but I'll say it anyways. Um, the, ten, the 10% rule, like tip your waiter 10%. You know how old that is? You know how long ago we started tipping 20% and more? <laughs> because they don't get paid squat. Right? So can I just encourage us? I think Christians should be better than the culture around us. And in that area, I think we should tip higher, even if that waiter does a really poor job. You know why? Because that's grace. Isn't it? Isn't that what God does? Every time you biff it, every time you screw it up, every time you don't knock it out of the park like you wanted to, what does God do? Uh, you know, I'm only going to give him 5% of a tip this time because, you know, he sucks. No. No, he just continues to pour out more grace. Like, so that's my pet peeve there. Let me move on. <laughs> the question is, is, are you honoring Christ, exalting Christ, promoting Christ, obeying Christ in your relational interactions as a simultaneous slave to some and master of others? At the end of the day, every one of us has blown it badly in both these categories, haven't we? You've either walked out of begrudging, pouting, water cooler complaining, kind of obedience as a slave, or in the other category as a master, you've walked out of belligerent, threatening, using, abusive kind of authority as a master. I argue that every one of us has walked simply in both of these areas. Um, point of confession for me, I remember a day 
I came home, and uh, I found out one of my daughters had broken an expensive camera, a three or four hundred dollar camera, I think, right? Yeah, it was expensive. And we told her, don't, don't touch the camera. Sure, she'd been disobedient. Um, but you know what her motivation was? She was trying to take pictures for the family. That was her motivation. Her, her motivation wasn't, man, I want to be disobedient today. Just disobey my parents. Her, her motivation was, I want, to, I want to take some pictures to bless my family. I walked in after a long, hard day of work. Probably was in like five or six counseling sessions that day. I had enough of people, whatever it was. My own weakness. Uh, walked in the door. Found it broken. I kind of exploded on her. Made her feel about this big. It doesn't take much for me to do that. I've, God's given me a gift of words. It's also a curse. I use my words in about four or five seconds and just cut somebody down to size. I've had to wrestle that down a ton over the years. I made her feel like she was an inch tall. And the look on her face said it all immediately. What I had to do is I had to step back. Ask the Lord whether I was honoring Christ, exalting Christ, or obeying Christ in that moment of emotional and verbal tongue lashing. Sure, I could have justified myself. She was disobedient. The problem with that is me justifying myself puts Jesus back on the cross again. Because he died to justify me of my sins. So why should I justify myself? What I should be doing is beating myself down. Because that's the war against my sinful flesh. Not justifying my sinful self. Right. So in that moment, um, if my relational interaction with her wasn't building her up as an image bearer of Christ, she's created to be, my interaction with her was tearing her down. It was destroying the image of God in her. So I've been destructive with her. I was more concerned with an inanimate object, I hope, this, I hope this circles everything back around for you to my original anger at the whole topic of slavery, and that you understand that I know that I've biffed it here too. Right? None of us has a right to stand in judgment. I was more concerned with an inanimate object that I could owe and use for my pleasure rather than being concerned about the living, breathing person in front of me. Apply that to statues. We often use people to get the things we want rather than using the things we have to build up the people around us. Like the image of God being built up in my daughter is far more valuable than a couple hundred dollar camera. I mean, the image of people in our culture it's far more important than some of the fights that we pick. Some of you in this room that need to go to a brother or sister in this room, I need to ask them to forgive you for your war against things that were antithetical to the gospel. I don't care if you're not going to be my friend after this. What I care about is the gospel of Jesus Christ being adorned and people being built up in the image of Christ. You've heard me confess my failures in this area. I challenge you to follow me as I follow Christ. Jesus didn't die on a cross to pay the price to purchase inanimate objects like cameras or statues. Every one of us has reduced another human being into the object of our desires. We have used people rather than loved them. 
here's the great news after all that bad news, though. The great news is that Jesus poured out his life so that the image of God or the reflection of God could be restored in his children. Let me ask you, what does the image of God look like in and through you right now? I'm not concerned about who you think or you are enslaved to. I'm not concerned about who you have authority over. I'm concerned about whether or not you become a slave to Christ who became a slave on a cross for you. That's what I'm concerned about. Jesus died for you because he loves you. And you, you may not have a picture of that yet. You may not have experienced that yet. So therefore, that may not move you like it does me in this moment. I pray, I pray the Spirit of God would move you on this now. He loves you. He wants to see you restored to a right relationship with your Father in heaven. Really, come all the way back to the book of Philemon, the, the picture of Paul writing that letter to that slave owner to, to receive his runaway slave as a brother in the gospel. And it's a picture of the gospel, actually. Because in that letter, what the Apostle Paul does is he demolishes the dividing lines of hostility that once separated us. He tells that so-called master to receive that slave as a brother. Demolishes the lines completely. Social, economic, ethnic, religious, political, relational lines that once divided us have been abolished by the one who is the sacrificial master of everyone. Heaven. Heaven. That'll be a place where people from every tribe and every ton and every nation will stand together as brothers and sisters, worshiping the same resurrected Savior. This is what it means to be a part of the church today, and it's what it meant to be a part of the church in Ephesus. The church, both today and then, is the earthly representation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who gave his life for both slave and master alike at the cross of Calvary. We are called to be the image of heaven on earth. Never forget, never forget that the one that we worship here died as a slave, though he rightfully was our master. Why did he do this? So that we, who were enslaved, could be set free to worship and serve him as our master. Amen? Father, Father, I do ask that you would come and Lord, that you would take this message, these words. Father, that you would apply them to us. That you would drive us to the foot of the cross where your blood was poured out, where your body was broken horrifically so that we could receive the healing and the strength and the restoration and the redemption that we needed. In Jesus' name, amen.
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 